Good morning. How are we doing today? Uh, enjoying this rain. And uh, my name is Tom Nelson. Welcome uh, to the Leader Campus. And uh, I often say, I hope you sense the presence of Christ here and know how much we appreciate you being here and that you're very, very welcome. Well, I want to suggest that one of the hardest things in life is growing up. Do I hear an amen on that? Recently, I saw a YouTube video that actually, it started like 5,000 hits, it went millions this week, and it was on the nightly news. And um, it's a YouTube video of a young girl who doesn't want her little sister to grow up. Watch. Stay a little forever. Yeah, he's so cute. He's so cute and it makes you cry. And I, and I don't want to die when I'm an She doesn't want her little brother to grow up. (laughs) Well, kids, we're not picking on you because uh, if you're young or whatever age, let me just say that growing up is not an easy thing to do. It's hard for all of us, right? Absolutely. You know, it's not hard for us to grow old. We all grow old eventually, but uh, that doesn't mean we grow up, and it certainly doesn't mean we grow up on our own. Uh, We were placed in a community, families, coaches, friends help us grow up, don't they? In all dimensions of life, physical, emotional, psychological, but this is also true spiritually. In our spiritual lives, we don't grow up on our own either, that we need others to help us, and we're going to be reminded of that this morning. Because the text we're going to look at, this rich text, reminds us that the church helps us grow up. Now, when I say that, you may have a pushback. I understand that. You may see the church is... Well, not exactly essential to human maturity and flourishing, but rather optional. The church may seem to you at times, I hear this often, behind the times, perhaps hypocritical, perhaps too extreme, perhaps even intolerant, and perhaps self-serving. And uh, if you do not put on a critic lens, maybe the lens in which you see the church is more consumeristic. We all are consumers in this world. Sometimes we look at the church as uh, kind of a weekly drugstore. We sort of get our therapeutic fix. Uh, helps us get through the blues for the week. Or some of us love movies and we think of the church as a movie theater. We just go find a funny movie. I saw one this week and sort of forget about my troubles. Or we think of the church as sort of a big box store of Target or Walmart you know, a convenient parking, nice facilities, you just drive in, drive out. It's a lot of fun things for our family. It's packaged beautifully. But I want to raise the question, however we see the church, and there's lots of reasons, uh, may we be missing something about the church? Might we not see the church, perhaps, as it was meant to be? I know, is it possible? I mean, the church does have its shortcomings and failures and flaws. I'm sure I've contributed to that. But is it possible that you and I really need the church to grow up as a human being. I'd like you to turn to this text this morning, the book of Ephesians, the New Testament. 
And uh, we are going to look at chapter 4. And I'd like to raise two questions to sort of guard our thinking. The first question that Paul will address, and most importantly, is what is the church? Big question, huh? And secondly, why does the church matter? So first, what is the church? Now, before we drop into Paul's thinking, we want to, first of all, understand that Jesus talked about the church. And the church is not the Pope's idea, it's not Tom's idea, it's not anybody's idea apart from Jesus. He says, in the Gospel of Matthew, I will build my church. And also, we understand that as Paul begins to write his inspired pen from a, a Roman prison to the church at Ephesus, he wants us to know that the church is more than a building we attend. It's not merely a building we attend, it's a brand new people we become in Christ. So these foundational truths inform Paul's inspired pen. And what he does in this chapter is he helps us understand what the church is and why it matters in two ways. First, he gives us a defining metaphor that guides his whole book, actually, but particularly in chapter 4. And then he gives us three distinctive marks that flow out of this metaphor of what the church is and why it matters. So first, a defining metaphor. You will notice if you have your text open, if you've read Ephesians, you've read this book at all, that one of the primary metaphors, in fact, the defining metaphor is the human body. Verse 4, 12, and 16 emerges in chapter 4. Now let's remember that a metaphor is a literary device. It's a literary device that writers use to bring comparison. And the comparison is often from that which is very familiar to us to that which is less familiar. So it bridges the familiar with the unfamiliar. And it's interesting here to me that the Apostle Paul gives us something that is very familiar to us in which to compare the church. <laughs> the, the human body. I mean, let's, let's face it, all of us got one or we're dead right now. Okay, so if you, you have one, you know a body. And so he gives us that which is very familiar to us and he connects it to that which may be unfamiliar, the church. Now we know, whether we take an anatomy class or not, that our bodies are amazing living organisms and they have intricate systems that work together for the good of the whole. We know that. All of us know that, young and old. We also know that when one part of our bodies hurt or are not working right, <laughs> we feel crummy. All the rest of us is affected. Just try stubbing your toe in the middle of the night, which I've done several times. Or not too long ago, one of my worst moments, one of the most painful moments yet in my life is slamming my finger in our garage door. Uh, I don't, I'm glad you weren't here to hear me. It was a very excruciating pain. And once I got inside the kitchen, when the, you know, the door sort of let me go, uh, everything hurt. You know, you've been there. My toe, everything. It wasn't just my finger. Because we are created as whole beings. Every part of us is interconnected. And it's interesting. We you know, can't have our eyes look at our ears and say, I don't like you and I'm out of here. I mean, we know that. So Paul understands across the sands of time, across culture, across ages, that everybody knows what a physical human body is. You know, we live in one, right? So Paul wants us to grasp the familiar and connect it to maybe what is unfamiliar. He wants to cement in our minds that you and I were created with community in mind. We were created to be interdependent, and in our interdependence, we find our well-being and our maturation or our growth. So he gives us three defining marks of the church. First, in verses 1 and 2, he tells us that we are a called people. Notice, let me reread this section, verses 1 and 2, if you're following along. 
He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, remember he's in a Roman prison writing as a prisoner, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now notice what Paul does not say. He doesn't say the church is a group of self-selected people, but rather a called people. And literally, again, the word church in the Greek text means the called out ones. That's plural. Now, when my cell phone rings, I know none of your cell phone ever rings anywhere awkward, like in church. If my cell phone rang in church, it'd be rather awkward, don't you think? I leave it in my office, just in case you're wondering. Uh, It's one of my fears. But if your cell phone rings, you know that someone's calling you. And uh, you know that you should listen and what they're saying matters. It's that picture. Jesus of the church says he calls us. And we should be willing to listen. Someone has to call us first. We are the called. And, and I'm not just stating the obvious. It's very important to understand that Paul cements the church in this idea of Jesus calling us. Now, a friend of Christ's community, Oz Guinness, who's a writer and a wonderful friend, describes our calling, I think, perhaps better than anyone I know. And he makes the point that God's call is the basis for our understanding of reality, of why we are here and what our purpose is in life. So this idea of calling is not just a churchy idea. It's deeply embedded in what it means to be human. And, and Oskinus writes this. I think it's so well said. Calling, he says, this is this idea of this word here in Ephesians, is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are Everything we do, everything we have, is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out in response to his summons and service. Church, again to Paul, and as Oz is speaking, is not a self-selected individualistic gathering of spiritual consumers. Rather, it is a gathering of called-out apprentices of Jesus, And this is a very high calling. This is why Paul will say in verse 2, you notice the language, to walk worthy of our calling. It is a high calling. And notice what our calling looks like as a community is the very fruit of the Spirit. Notice some of the fruit of humility. Notice that of gentleness and love in the text. Now, as the body of Christ, the local church is designed and empowered, what I would say is to paint a living 3D picture of what Jesus is like to the world while he's gone before he returns. In other words, we are boots on the ground. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his mouthpiece. If the world is going to know, if our culture is going to know, if our globe is going to know who Jesus is, God's design in this time is that the church would show him or show them. Now, Dr. John Stott, who uh, is now with the Lord, a wonderful Christian leader, a a Brit, describes in, I think, one of the finest books written in, in at least in the 20th century on the living church, he describes it this way, the high calling of the church. Notice, he says, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For his purpose, conceived in past eternity, being worked out in history and to be perfected in future eternity, is not just to save isolated individuals, and so perpetuate our loneliness, but to build his church, that is to call out of the world a people for his own glory. Paul emphasizes this high calling, that we are God's new community, 
And this calling leads to our unique stamp of unity in the world. So his first distinctive mark is we are called people. And from that, notice Paul in this text builds a literary progression from our calling to our unity and to yet our maturity. So here he presses in to our unity that flows from our calling. Notice the literary connection in his thought. Now notice verses 3 through 6. If you look at this text, if you have it open, you'll notice that Paul continues to repeat the idea of one. Um, And he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, in the original language, there is this incredible sense of emphatic repetition. It's almost like when you read it, like, Paul, I get it. One, 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 you know? And if you look at it, though, it is a rich creed that was most likely spoken when the early church came together for worship. This is a creedal formulation. And notice the words one. Let me just highlight those. One body, that means the church. One spirit, that refers to the Holy Spirit, which we looked at last week in our series. Excuse me. One hope, that is the hope of the resurrection. Our Lord, which is a reference to Jesus Christ. Our faith, which is a reference to the gospel. Our baptism, which is a reference to our being entered into the church. And our triunity of God, or our trinity God, one God and Father. And you will notice in the formulation this three repetition, this threefold framing, and there's an explicit reference to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is all a part of how this creed was formulated. And it builds on this understanding of unity, that the church's unity reflects the Trinity's unity, that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, have diversity, unity within community. So as individuals from Genesis on, we are created in God's image. We are image bearers of a triune God. As the new creation people, the local church, we are now also reflecting collectively unity, diversity within community. We reflect the the Trinity. That's the picture here. And what we see in Jesus' teaching about the church, the night before he was betrayed or when he was betrayed and crucified, Jesus has a high priestly prayer to the Father for us. And he tells in the prayer, he affirms our unity with diversity and prays for our unity that it would reflect the Trinity. Listen to verses 20 and 21 of John 17. Jesus says to the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That includes us. Jesus prayed for you and me. Do you believe that? Isn't that cool? That they may be one, notice, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, now notice, so that the world may believe you sent me. The local church, living together with their diversity and unity and community, is the apologetic, the picture of why God exists and who Jesus is to the world. That's amazing. Jesus knew that for his rescued image bearers, That unity would be hard for us. I mean, if you are contemplating getting married, if you're dating, if you are married or been married, you know that two human beings coming together with diversity is not easy to maintain unity. I hear an amen on that? I mean, listen, I've been, that looks good. Listen, I um, have been married 32 years. uh, And uh, she was in the first service, so I'm saying it's been very amazing. 
wonderful. But you know, we had premarital counseling. We took a test called the TJTA, which is the Taylor Johnson Temperament Analysis. And uh, our premarital counselor <laughs> framed out in that day kind of how we had compatibility. It's called GAPs or MAs, marital adjustments to anticipate. <laughs> Serious ones, like, you know, Pike's Peak. And uh, so one of, the, one of the categories was discipline and spontaneity. And if you know my bride, Liz, we're very different. And her life is spontaneity off the chart. And I am this boring disciplined off the charts. So the council looked at us and said, you can anticipate some marital adjustments. <laughs> that was an understatement. See, when we're dating, if you date, you know, it's like all these differences are novelties. You know, they like different kind of music. Isn't that cool? They like different kinds of food. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's kind of fun. They, their room's messy and yours not in your apartment or, you know, all these differences. But then when you get married for a while, it's not novelty anymore. <laughs> Unity is very hard to maintain with diversity. Paul knew that. That's always been the case. And that's true in the church. And notice in verse 3, he says, that's why we don't create unity. We maintain it. Notice the text in the bond of peace. That's what glues us together. Maintaining unity in a local church requires hard work and a dependence on the Holy Spirit. And frankly, if we just do Sunday morning, and Sunday morning is a good thing to do, and I want to thank you for being here this morning. It's a good thing, okay? But if we just see the church as a Sunday morning experience only, then our differences don't really matter much. It's like dating, you know? You don't really have to get to know someone next to you. But if you dive deeper in a small group or in a community group where you begin to live life together as the church is designed, whoa, challenges come, don't they? And maintaining unity in the church is not found in a comfortable superficiality, uh-uh. But unity and the growth that comes from it is an uncomfortable transparency where we do life together, diversity and all, and differences and all. Maintaining unity was not easy for the first century church. Let's go back to his listeners. How would they have re- listened to this? Paul knew this. The Jewish world and the Gentile Roman world were polarizing worlds apart. There were past hurts, there were past suspicions, past abuse, different languages. Think about this, different economic realities, massive religious differences, and cultural differences. Massive between Jew and Gentile. And they were all part of the church here he's writing to. (laughs) Yet it was in Jesus' church, the spirit-filled unity would overshadow all this cultural diversity with unifying love and healing grace. How many of us today hear about how the church is so extreme? And yes, the church can be too extreme in some areas, I guess. But I want to suggest in some areas the church is not extreme enough or not seen as extreme enough. What we see in this text is extreme. It is the kind of extreme grace and extreme love that allows extreme differences to be united and to love one another. When I look across the world, when I look across our nation, our communities, our polarization, I have to say the local church is the only hope to have unity within diversity. Paul is not saying unity is uniformity. There are many shades of colors and differences that add to the beauty and kaleidoscope of the body of Christ. Hear me carefully. Unity is not about people becoming more like me. Amen. (laughs) Nor you. Unity is about me and you becoming more like Jesus. 
as apprentices of Jesus, the more you and I are becoming like Jesus, the more unified our local church family will be. It's just how it works. And the more we'll flourish as God's people. Notice where this text goes. Call people, unified people, a flourishing people. We've been focusing primarily on verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4, but I want you to grasp that verses 1 through 16 are an entire literary unit. Paul moves from calling unity to maturity. Notice in verses 7 through 16, he highlights the graceful diversity of local church. Do you see that? The different spiritual gifts. And then he builds to this metaphor of maturity and infancy. In verses 13 through 14, Paul continues to build on this. He contrasts maturity of adulthood with the immaturity of infancy. Infancy may be cute and adorable, right? <laughs> like the girl with her little brother. But it's a very vulnerable stage, and we weren't created to stay there. We can grow old, but we cannot grow up. And Paul is saying, don't just grow old, grow up. And the way we grow up is the local church. Notice verses 15 through 16. Let me just read those for us. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want you to notice this phrase. Don't miss this. Paul says, we are to grow up in every way in Christ. See, whether you are a young boy or girl here this morning, a student, a young adult, somewhere in between, a seasoned citizen, you and I are called to the local church to help each other grow up. This is the intergenerational design of the local church. Paul is saying it only takes not just a village to make a child, it takes a church for a person and a society and a country to flourish. It takes a local church to grow us up. But to grow us up in every way in Jesus. This involves spiritual growth, yes, but it involves all of what it means to be human. The gospel speaks into every dimension of our life and makes us more and more human. Let's remember Jesus. The gospel writer Luke says Jesus grew up in favor with God, right? Spiritual favor with men, social stature. See, growing up in every way, Paul is saying, is profoundly changing, transforming. That the local church helps us grow up in every way. That means, let's just unpack this. What does that mean for you and me? Our relationship with others, with our friends at school, students. It means growing up and experiencing more meaningful and satisfying marriages. The local church, as God designed it, as the Holy Spirit empowers us, helps us to grow in the life of the mind. Do you realize that you cannot fully understand the world and grow intellectually unless you are a part of a vibrant local church? It helps us grow up in our vocations. It helps us grow up as an artist, a teacher, a stay-at-home spouse, an employer, an employee, a business owner, a professional, a barista at Starbucks or whatever it is. Our local church is designed to help us grow in our financial and economic understanding and wisdom. And our local church family is designed and empowered to help us in a hopeful way confront the inevitable suffering, disappointments, difficulty, and death itself that we face. 
Jesus designed, designed the local church, not for his benefit, but for ours. Do we realize that? So that you and I could flourish. So that you and I could live the life we were created to live, a life with a nourishing spiritual community, a life of intimacy with God and with others, a life of wholeness and integrity, a life of meaning and purpose and influence in the world, to be the person God has created us to be and Jesus is redeeming us to be. The local church is vital for us to grow up. And notice Paul emphasizes the importance of sound doctrine and truth in that process. The summer, Christ can be, we've been walking through our doctrinal statement and emphasizing that sound doctrine matters. Sound doctrine matters. At Christ's community, it matters in your life and mine. It is a vital component of a local church flourishing. It's a vital component for us to grow up in Christ. Do you realize, do we realize that one of the greatest impediments to anyone's spiritual growth is false doctrine? False doctrine is like spiritual junk food. If you're a fan of Twinkies, think of it that way. It may be tasty at first and appealing at first, but it will never nourish your soul, and it will lead you to a perilous end. This summer, we've been exploring our doctrinal statement. We have said that the Christian faith properly understood is not only right behavior, but right belief, and that includes right belief about the church. I'd like to highlight for us our doctrinal statement. And uh, you may have many more questions. We'd love to answer those, but let me highlight it for us briefly. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest, notice, in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. That's formal membership. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Now again, there's like all our doctrinal statement pieces, there's a lot here. Let me highlight just a couple things. Notice the emphasis on baptism and the Lord's Supper. At Christ's community, we believe that baptism is not a means of salvation, but it is a visible outward sign of an inward grace. And for the person who has embraced the gospel, if you've embraced Christ, baptism is a vital step of obedience. For it not only gives a statement to the world of you belonging to Christ, but you belonging to a local church. Baptism is not just a statement of who we are in Christ, but that we are called to be a part of a local body. On August 16th, we're going to have one of our baptism services. You heard Pastor Andrew talk about that early in the service. And I encourage you to be a part of that. And if you'd like to be baptized, you've never been baptized, you're a follower of Jesus, or maybe that's a prompt for you to trust Christ, we would love to talk with you after the service about that. We also believe the Lord's Supper is very important. The Lord's Supper is given many different names in the Christian traditions. Some call it the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. Others call it the Holy Communion. It's not so much the name. It's how we understand what it is. And different Christian traditions understand it differently. Let me just simply say how we understand it so you know. At Christ's community, we believe Holy Communion is not a means of salvation, but rather, again, an outward sign of an inward grace. You'll notice in the doctrinal statement the richness of the Holy Communion. 
or the Lord's Supper in it nourishing us and strengthening us. So why does the church matter? We looked at what Paul said. Paul gives more emphasis on what the church is. The church is a unified people, a call people, a maturing, flourishing people. So why does it matter? Now, I could answer that question, and you could in many different ways. I could spend a long time unpacking why the local church, as God designed it, matters so much. But let me highlight three things for us to tuck into our hearts and minds for this week, and mainly how it matters so much to you and me. First, all of us long to flourish. Growing up is not an easy thing to do, but we long to be the people God created us to be, don't we? Each of us longs to belong. We long to have connection with others, to feel at home, to be part of a welcoming family, a local church overflowing with both truth and grace. Christ's community we seek to be this kind of welcoming local church family to everyone, to everyone. We seek to be prayerful. We seek to be graceful. We seek to be intentional about being a people and a place that encourages your spiritual formation and spiritual growth. That influences how we plan Sunday morning and our programming. This shapes how we do community groups and why we are hopeful everyone who is a part of Christ's community will find a small group that will play a vital role in helping them grow up in Christ. We also seek to encourage you to find a place of service, serving our broader church family, our children's ministry, student ministry, our welcome team, and there are many other ways of service. Christ Community Church, we are so deeply passionate and encouraging and prayerful and longing for God to do a new work and asking the Holy Spirit to do a new work here. And we so ask God to help us grow up in every way, every way. Our passion as pastors, elders, as leaders is that we would not only flourish on Sunday morning, but that we would be a local church that puts wind in your sails and equips you to flourish on your Monday work, at school on Monday, your relationships and all of life. The church matters because we long to flourish in all dimensions. And God designed the church to do that for us and be a part of that in our lives. Secondly, our world longs for hope, don't they? Doesn't the world long for hope? When I listen to the news, when I look on the, online, when I read the Wall Street Journal, when I talk to people in my community, in our city, the world is crying out for hope. I don't see it. It is so discouraging right now. The local church is the hope of the world as Jesus designed it. We are his hands, his feet, his boots on the ground. Do we really grasp that? When we think of our neighbors, our friends that we hang out with, our colleagues at work, Think of those people that you love. They will not flourish as God designed them to flourish without them encountering and embracing the gospel and becoming part of a local church that honors Christ and teaches truth and love and grace. They will never be the people God has called them to be without them. What does that say? Where is the hope for the people around us? Maybe your action step this week. One action step is to share a bit of your spiritual journey with a friend, a colleague, and the good news of the gospel with a friend or neighbor. Maybe there's a person you've been wanting to invite to join you for church. Will you do that this week? To invite them to come with you. And you know I say, if you've been around, you know I'm saying this not because I want Christ to be bigger, whatever that all that stuff is. 
It's because I know what the scripture teaches. And without the local church, those people that you love will never flourish as God designed them to flourish. Lastly, Jesus longs for us to love what he loves. It's not accidental, incidental. But Paul continues to press into chapter 5, and here he brings in another metaphor. He compares the love of a husband for his bride, his wife, a love of sacrifice and cherishing. What does Jesus love most? Paul says that the church is the bride of Jesus. What does Jesus love most? That's not a hard question to answer. We don't have to stumble or fumble. We know what the answer is from the text. Jesus loves most his bride, the local church. You and me. He loves many things, of course, sure. But there's only one thing he calls his bride, and that's his church. So the more we love Jesus, the more we love Jesus and what he loves, and the more we love his church, they go hand in hand. The more we pray for her, the more we cherish her, our church, the more we generously support her, with our time, talent, and treasures, the more kinder we are when we speak about her and the more committed we are to our local church and the global church around the world. And maybe your action step this morning is simply to pray and ask God, I don't know what baggage you have. I don't know what issues you have about the church. I know the church fails many times. Maybe you are simply being nudged by the Holy Spirit to put past some of the pains you've wrestled with. Maybe there are wrongful attitudes about this church or another church Maybe you just need to say to the Lord, Jesus, help me to love what you love. Last Sunday, I was visiting with a newer family at the Leewood campus. Delightful family. I think they've been here about a year or so. After we said hi and I chatted with them, they were with their family and we were down on the other level. They said to me, Tom, we love this church. Notice it wasn't Tom's church. We love this church. We are so thankful for Christ's community. And they said, this church has profoundly impacted our lives and our children's lives. I thank them for their good words and their well-chosen words. Why is the local church such a big deal? Because God wants each of us to grow up. And he's given us the church to make that happen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you. We confess to you our sin and trust in Christ, our living Savior. Our hearts are bursting with thanksgiving for who you are and what you've done. And Holy Spirit, do a new work. Do a new work in our lives. For your glory and praise. Bless these elements of the bread and the vine, we pray.